Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Elisa Lironi. Elisa is a senior manager working on European democracy at the European Citizen Action Service. And after our conversation, I'll introduce you to some of the events organized by ELF during this month of August. Here with Elisa Laroni. Elisa, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, uh, it's a really uh, a pleasure to be here today, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, the pleasure um, is mine. <laughs> now, before we talk a little bit, you know, about Ekish and about European democracy and digital democracy, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're a scuba diver enthusiast, but uh, <laughs> let's try to focus a little bit on the path you took until you got here. Yes, well, sure. So um, I work at the European Citizen Action Service since almost uh, four years now. And my role since the beginning was to basically develop the focus area that was quite recent when I joined. And it was the digital democracy focus area because... Uh, ICAS also works on EU rights. In fact, we have a very um, well-known service with the European Commission called Your Europe Advice, in which we basically respond to citizens' inquiries on their EU rights. And we give them legal advice in around 72 hours if they submit their inquiry to our platform. So ICAS has uh, always been working around the, the topics of EU citizenship, EU rights, but at a certain point, it realized that um, there was a, a need to, uh, to focus more on what was happening uh, with the rise of technology and how technology was also influencing our societies um, and uh, how it was especially influencing democracy. So this is how the digital democracy uh, focus area came about. And four years ago, we really um, did a lot of work at ICAS to develop this focus area which today is European democracy, because we realized that um, digital democracy is also linked to another two components, which are populism and online disinformation. So today, as you see our focus area, I work on uh, implementing projects, implementing services such as the ECI forum, and of course, also doing research around digital democracy, online disinformation and populism. Um, but my speciality is definitely um, with the e-participation mechanisms because so I've been publishing different um, research studies for the institutions such as the European Parliament uh, with the potential and challenges of e-participation in the European Union or a study that I did for the Economic and Social Committee, which was around the online public consultations of the European Commission. Uh, and then since uh, the very start of the European Citizens Initiative, ECAS as an NGO has been supporting organizers and now we're actually supporting Secretariat General of the European Commission in the development of the ECI forum and the implementation of, the, of uh, giving, let's say, advice to organizers who want to, to um, use the European Citizens Initiative as a tool of transnational democracy in the EU. That's a great explanation, but let's talk a little bit about you. Unless you're a shy person and you don't want to do it, 
but I was uh, going to ask you, how did you get interested in this in this particular point? You're not from, you're not Belgium, you're not from Brussels originally. Uh, I know you're Italian, but when you were young, were your focus already uh, aimed on this? This came out later, naturally, what happened? So I moved to Belgium when I was around 21 years old and I uh, basically attended my master's in European studies in uh, UCL and, um, uh, well, it was the university here in Belgium, Louvain-la-Neuve, the, the Catholic university. And um, yes, uh, the reason why I, I started that master's was because I was pretty passionate about, uh, let's say, trying to understand how policymaking works and how actually democracy works. Um, so everything came quite naturally. Before that, I, my background was in, um, well, I was studying to become an interpreter because uh, I'm half Italian and half Chinese. I lived in Bangkok, Rome, and now in, in Belgium uh, for, you know, so in different parts of the world, I've always considered myself a, a very open-minded person. And, um, when I came to Brussels, uh, I was really, uh, it was, the reason was because I didn't think my language studies were enough. And I really wanted to study a bit of economy, law and, uh, political science. And that's why I think that the masters in European studies kind of gathered these three aspects nicely. Uh, and right after that, actually already during my studies, I was an activist for different uh, um, organizations, um, uh, such as the, um, the Partito Democratico uh, base here in Brussels. I was already an activist uh, uh, there. And then I also was an activist as a young European federalist. And I actually worked a year also at the, at the Union of European Federalists. Um, right before I then joined ICAS uh, because I've, I've always been also a bit of a, a, a geek and uh, I've always been also very, very, um, let's say, attracted to technology. And, uh, and uh, of course, I wanted to work in the field of, te uh, of democracy. So when I saw this uh, possibility to join ICAS to really combine the two um, <laughs> passions that I have, uh, I decided that uh, I would you know, apply. And uh, I was really happy when I was given the position and I managed to nicely develop the focus area in the, in the past few years. So that's well, uh, in a nutshell. <laughs> yes. And being a geek gives you extra points in this podcast. Don't, don't okay. worry about it. One last question and then about you and then we'll move on to uh, the topic of the, t the podcast. But you, you did mention that you were interested in policy making and also uh, political science. I've ever considered to be a politician or that activist part of you was always speaking louder? Um, definitely the, um, the activist part. Um, I've always been, I think, a very outspoken person. So naturally, when I was doing interpreting, um, some of my friends didn't really see it fitting my, my character because I had to translate other people's voices while I always had a loud voice myself, a very, very opinionated, I have to say. So I always, um, that, that's one of the reasons why I also started to tell myself maybe I should join a civil society organization or or, you know, a political, um, a political party as an activist. Um, and I really, really enjoyed those 
those first years as an activist. Um, and uh, let's say that at a certain point, I also realized that I didn't want to be in just, you know, in one political party. I wanted to be dealing with issues which would should be at the heart of different uh, political parties. So, for example, you know, more uh, horizontal important issues such as democracy should be at the heart of any political party. So that's why I kind of moved from a specific um, political focus and a, a political ideology to more of an organization which is dealing with, you know, defending citizens' rights and, and working on democracy, which should be something that all political parties should be, you know, fostering better, let's say. You did mention just a minute ago that there's two areas that are particular of interest, and that is online disinformation and fighting populism. So let's start with that. What actions are involved in fighting those two big problems now regarding European democracy and digital democracy? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, um, well, there are very, very big challenges around these themes. I think that oh, online disinformation and populism are quite it is quite clear that these are challenges of our times, the rise of movements that uh, can be defined as populism, because it's also quite difficult uh, to define what a populist is. Um, actually, we did a study for the Economic and Social Committee um, recently, which has been published, uh, and it's about uh, trying to understand you know, populism in non-metropolitan areas, and we analyzed four countries in Europe. Um, Italy, Austria, Poland, and France, and, and eight regions, let's say two in each country. And it was a, a very interesting uh, study because uh, we had to really try to start with a basic notion of, of populism, which we found out was completely impossible because it is so also linked to the different political cultures of each member state. Um, and it's very specific. So that's why we also call our our focus area, understanding populism, because we don't think that we're there yet and that we have to be very careful. But one thing is, is sure is that the people who vote for populist movements are sometimes in very, very, let's say, isolated, um, non-urban areas. And they feel that they have been isolated because it was also very difficult to find, for example, NGOs working on the local territory, which were, you know, trying to, to um, let's say, um, foster a certain values such as democracy. They were just completely isolated areas. So one really key recommendation that came out from this, uh, this study was the fact that we need to be back in those spaces and we need to reconstruct structures for civil, civic dialogue in those uh, non-metropolitan areas. Then, of course, this is also linked to other aspects, uh, such as uh, the idea of direct democracy the idea, and uh, how people access to information. So that's why we also have online disinformation and, uh, let's say, digital democracy. Um, when we, just to clarify, when we intend digital democracy, we don't mean direct democracy. But there is, uh, from our research, we saw a, a bit of a frustration amongst uh, citizens calling sometimes for, you know, direct democracy. And we're seeing how instead of direct democracy, we can actually 
reinforce the notion of representative democracy, but using digital tools. That's kind of the aspect that we go about. So with more participatory democracy. Um, the second pillar that I was mentioning was the online disinformation. As I said, this came also through our research of digital democracy because information and communication technology has also changed how citizens actually receive and have access to information, how they can co-create information nowadays and disseminate information by themselves at the speed of light. And this really, really influences how people actually form their public opinions because um, they can access certain information now um, from sometimes unreliable sources or also reliable sources, of course. But that's how they, they form public opinions and public, you know, um, ideas and actually it influences how they act, vote in elections and, um, um, yeah, they, they actually live this democracy. And uh, as I said, the third one was the, is the one that I, I've been working on the most, digital democracy, and it's really about analyzing information and communication technology in order to foster democratic processes. And so we refer to e-participation mechanisms there. But I would like to have your opinion on one topic that I think is really important, and that is that asymmetry between the regional, the interior of the country and the big cities and the, the more populous centers. On those studies that you did, and you just mentioned that there's got to be more proximity, NGOs should work more locally. Uh, how do you think that we can you know, move in that direction? It's easy process. It's easier than it thinks. It's really, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be really complicated. What is your take on that? Well, it is challenging because, as I said, uh, mm, we use a very, very broad term and we put kind of these movements sometimes in the same basket. And that we, what we've seen in our uh, recent study is that it's that's not OK. What we need is definitely more research on maybe more focused on, on the national member states, even though there's a lot of it in trying to understand also why, you know, these movements, which are also very different amongst themselves, are rising and uh, being voted by, by citizens. I think that there are, unfortunately, um, maybe voting for populist movements can be just a symptom of problems which are much more in-depth. Um, people are also very frustrated by how traditional politics works. Um, and this is absolutely also linked to the rise of technology and how, you know, technology have given possibilities to communicate in a very, very direct way to decision makers, which didn't exist in the past. Um, information and communication technology has also, you know, as I mentioned, given a different way to access to information. And so certainly in that sense, we need to upgrade also our, um, our democracy to the 21st century because what we're doing is, um, is not enough. And uh, so there is the rise of these movements sometimes because there is something lacking on the other side. For example, we also know that populists are, for example, much better at exploiting ICT tools, much more than more, let's say, mainstream political parties. Um, 
but also sometimes people have the frustration that mainstream political parties are also not bold enough in their ideas and in their ideologies anymore. So we see a lot of, you know, um, parties which are supposed to be at one or the, the other side of the spectrum, which just are more centrist. And sometimes that's a problem because people are demanding for more, but you also need to have politicians and, and policymakers who, who are bold enough to, to, you know, propose something different from, from what we have today. Um, this came more from my activist uh, <laughs> Yes. Well, this is this is really good stuff, and I would ask you to come again to the podcast that can focus a little more on that because it is it is very important and very um, urgent problem to be solved in Europe. Mm -hmm. But let's uh, dive a little more now on digital democracy. I have three words here that starts with an E. And that is e-democracy, e-transparency, and e-participation. Mm -hmm. And that goes things like budget, uh, mm -hmm. citizens' initiatives, e-petition, e-voting, crowdsourcing. We're not going to go into those things in particular, but I have a question for you, and it is, what is the risk that people may think with all these tools and all this dynamic that e-democracy can replace traditional forms of democracy. What is the problem with that thought? Mm -hmm. Well, um, yes, yeah, so I'm happy that you mentioned the, the three aspects of, um, of e-democracy, which is something that I, I usually explain just so that people get the idea of what um, let's say e-participation means, which is the aspect that I focus on the more, because e-government is really about how ICT develops services and, and let's say public administration services, while e-transparency is of course about how a government opens up its, uh, its information so that people can form public opinions based on what is happening. And e-participation is really the interaction between the government and the citizens. Um, and under e-participation, we have, as you said, a lot of digital democracy tools, which can be participatory budgeting, e-initiatives, uh, um, crowdsourcing mechanisms, uh, um, etc., and even e-voting and many more. So the challenge at the moment, I have to say, is, um, and this comes from my analysis of um, in um, uh, case studies all around Europe, around e-democracy, is the fact that there are some really, really good um, cases of e-democracy uh, around across Europe, but most of the time uh, they are maybe short-term experiments. They are also not, they're not systematic. Um, and there is not enough research and data gathered around these uh, specific instruments to verify completely if uh, they, um, how they're fostering democratic processes. But there is a huge potential in using these tools because through e-participation, so um, allowing for more participatory mechanisms in what we call our representative democracy, we actually can enhance different, um, there is the potential to, for example, ensure that citizens have a sort of learning process. So these e-participation tools can actually contribute to civic education. Because once you're put on the spot that you need to work together with your policymakers to create a certain legislation, then 
You also, you know, have to talk to other citizens about your ideas. You need to talk to policymakers about your ideas and you have to learn how policy making is working. So that's one of the potentials that we've seen. Another potential is the fact that it enhances sometimes, sometimes in some cases, trust and legitimacy of the institutions when they use these sort of channels, which is um, great because, in, for example, in the case of, uh, there was a very important crowdsourcing case in Iceland um, in around 2010, in which the reason why the government and the, the parliament proposed to open their constitutional reform to the people was because there was a huge amount of frustration uh, from the people after the financial crisis. Yes. So this was a way, let's say, for the institutions to try to, you know, to try to tell people, okay, we see that you are frustrated and dissatisfied with how things are working. Why not we work together on the basic values that should be um, of, uh, of Iceland? And so sometimes some initiatives come top down. Other initiatives, though, have been started by NGOs, such as the case of Latvia in which um, an NGO called uh, Manabalsa, My Voice in Latvian, decided that this representative democracy based on elections every five years is not enough, that people want to have um, a voice also in between elections. And so they created this e-initiatives platform in which nowadays citizens can you know, either propose a new legislation or um, propose a modification to a legislation, have a, a certain amount of signatures, and if they reach that certain amount of signatures, their issue is debated in a mandatory way in, by their members of parliament, which I think is also a very good case of uh, how digital democracy is working because they usually create online platforms to, to facilitate the process. Very interesting. And you just mentioned a sentence that I wrote here, and I want you to go a little bit into that, and that is democracy between elections. Mm -hmm. Because again, the, the traditional form of democracy that we think is that we go vote every four years or every five years, and then some people will consume the media, will be informed about you know the government and corruption scandals and so on and so forth but this is the kind of democracy that we need between elections and that is more participation more uh, work done at the NGO level at the citizens level so this is the future of democracy then getting back to my original question Mm -hmm. Well, yes, definitely. What I think is that we need to definitely uh, complement our representative democracy with more channels for citizens' participation, also more channels for maybe stakeholders' participation, um, which can be also different because at the EU level we have, for example, consultations, which I would say are a channel for stakeholders, while the European Citizens Initiative is more a channel for citizens. What I think is important, and that's why when we talk about digital democracy, we also say that it's about complementing offline participation with online participation. Um, mm -hmm. The most important thing is that we create these additional channels, which are taken seriously, of course, by, par by politicians, in order to complement a representative democracy, which just seems not to be enough um, for, for many people.
maybe not the majority of the people yet, but definitely the fact that nowadays I can use my smartphone to reach out directly to a decision maker has changed. Because once upon a time, other generations, uh, my father's generation would just, you know, be part of a political party, uh, be part of a trade union, uh, or had to look for intermediaries to reach out to uh, representatives. While nowadays, ICT has given us the means to reach out directly to those representatives. So we need to find the best way to, to use the possibilities of, of technology to allow people to do that. Indeed, and that leads me to another question, and that is, how much is too much? Could we be creating too much noise, too much uh, channels, too much confusion? Or do you think that there could be systems, like for example, you need to have a certain amount of signatures to apply to, uh, to a kind of you know, e-transparency or e-participation mechanism? Could that be a way? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, I think that when I speak about digital democracy, I receive a lot of uh, policymakers, but not only who are already like a bit afraid of what I'm saying, because they immediately think about what's happening with tech giants and our social media channels, um, mm -hmm. which pose a lot of, uh, of challenges. And I won't go into that, but uh, definitely, <laughs> I think we all talk about that nowadays. Um, but when we refer to digital democracy, we're really referring to these specific, um, let's say, e-participation mechanisms, which are being already implemented at the local, national level, and sometimes at the EU level. And they're more structured. What digital democracy definitely needs is structure, is uh, human resources, enough human resources, because you need a lot of people to, a good team of people to, let's say, analyze citizens' contributions. You need financial resources, and you need a certain framework to make sure that the contributions taken through an e-participation mechanism then have a certain impact on policymaking. Because if not, if you lack impact or you do not meet citizens' expectations when they participate, then they will be highly frustrated. So, But there are many, many different cases in Europe where these uh, mechanisms have been applied quite nicely. There's a, a very good case of participatory budgeting in, in Paris, um, initiated by uh, Mayor Hidalgo when she was first elected, which now is, uh, you know, up and running and, uh, and they use e-platforms for that. And plus they added e-consultations and e-initiatives, I think, in, their, in, their, in Paris. Um, if not, you know, crowdsourcing happens, for example, in different phases. In the beginning, you have citizens giving you, to politicians, quite broad ideas, but then you narrow it down with certain citizens who are experts on those topics to come up with a sort of proposal for legislation, or in the case of Iceland, it was the, the constitution. And then you always have the ultimate step, which is the representatives. So people do not have to be afraid of, you know, thinking that this is going to be direct democracy taking over, because that's not where, what we propose. We propose just simply more participation, as I said, in between elections of what is our representative democracy. 
and a very needed uh, aspect of citizens' life and citizens' participation in the democratic process. Mm -hmm. uh, Elisa, time flew by. We just touched, you know, the surface of all the to um, some of the topics that I wanted to uh, talk to you. But for now, tell me what's in the near future for ECAS, for this kind of work that you're doing. So what are the big challenges that are coming in, in your horizon? Okay. Well, um, at the moment, I think that we're implementing, we're closing a few projects which were linked to the European elections and we're opening others, which are sometimes also about training, training like civil society organizations, uh, um, which are beyond, let's say, the Brussels uh, hub. Um, because I think that that's that's very much needed, not only to to refer to you know training citizens, but also to training those intermediaries um, and those communities, which are very important. Um, and uh, we're also working on different um, possibilities uh, for uh, piloting, for example, e-participation at the European level, because at the European level we only have a few formal mechanisms, for example, e-participation. E e-petitions or um, the European Citizens Initiative and the, um, the online public consultations. And of course, people can also refer to the ombudsman. There are a few things in the participatory uh, toolbox of the European Union, but we still think that there's a channel for citizens which is missing. And we would like to, you know, advocate for that channel. And a third thing that we will definitely be doing Uh, apart from, you know, doing more research on online disinformation, populism and digital democracy, is that we are still going to be working on the European Citizens Initiative Forum, uh, where we basically um, support organizers when they need some advice uh, on how to use the, the European Citizens Initiative as a tool and to make sure that they try to get one million signatures for their initiative. And we manage the seek advice section of this in which we give free of charge legal campaigning and fundraising advice to uh, citizens using the ECI. Well, this is a lot of work to do, but a very important one. And I'm going to commend you and also uh, Ekesh for doing this kind of work on the field because it is so important. And I'm going to thank you also so much for coming to the podcast. Well, like thank I just you. mentioned a minute <laughs> Like I just men mentioned a minute ago, we haven't gone into like a third of all the things that I wanted to talk to you. So I will be asking you to come to the podcast again soon that we can continue this conversation. And again, Elisa, thank you so much for coming. All right. Thank you very much, Ricardo. <laughs> I'm back and even before we go into this week's ELF events, let me tell you that you can also follow us now on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating. This way you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for the end of this month of August. On the 23rd in Prague, Czech Republic, we have Digital Education in the EU. Uh, why are we preparing European Children for Society 5.0? Every aspect of our society is being digitalized at an unprecedented pace. We are starting to see the effects of how the labor market will work with automation hitting sectors that were previously reliant on traditional education. 
what does this new paradigm look like and how can our educational system answer the call. And then from the 26th to the 29th in Sofia, Bulgaria, we have European Women's Academy in East Europe. European Women's Academy of Political Leadership and Campaigning is a state-of-the-art training program for women to bring immediate results in the next coming election. After attending the Academy, women are inspired and enriched with tools that allow them to take the next step in becoming more influential in politics. And then on the 27th in Istanbul, Turkey, we have the event titled Promoting Democratic Citizenship and Democratic Values Through Education. This event aims to address the current challenges and positive developments in the Turkish educational system and to discuss best practices of promoting responsible democratic citizenship through education with several experts from Europe. To know more about this events and others, just go to www.liberalforum.eu forward slash events. I'm going to say goodbye for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast is organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.